0: If you're new this morning, uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, if you forgot one, you can use one. There's sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. They won't tell you why there's umbrellas hanging in the room, but, you know, you, you can look at those. Uh, We're doing a community kind of outreach thing on June 19th. Uh, there it comes to our attention, there's an older guy in town. He's wheelchair-bound, and he has some stuff that he needs done around his house. So we essentially need like four or five Guys, and then about four ladies to help as well. We, I think my, my my mom is the one that's kind of heading this project up this time. And so I think we need a couple more guys and a couple more girls. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. We'd love for you guys to be involved and help out with that. And the uh, last thing before we get going is I got to kind of apologize out loud. If, if, anybody get my email updates every week? Okay. If you don't even know what that is, I I send out an email update every week that kind of gives you some stuff that's going on around here. And as soon as I sent this one out this week, I got this text message back from Eddie San Jose that said, You're a liar. <laughs> so I'll tell you the story of what happened. Because <laughs> I talked about it. So my friend, my, my friend's Mike and Carrie Foster. They have a little boy. His name's Mason. It's his, it's his birthday party. He's, he's three years old. And so someone gives him a boomerang. And what's a little kid going to do with a boomerang, right? So I'm like, so I'm reading the instructions, which is amazing for me. And so I read the instructions, and so I go and I, and I, and I throw it, you know, really light little throw, I throw it, and it comes back. And so Eddie says, if you can get it over that fence and have it come back, I will give you 20 bucks. And I go, boom! Yeah. And it goes over the fence, and it came back, just not over our fence. And it went into the neighbor's yard. So I sent his daughter off to go scavenge for it. She couldn't find it. I went and found it and brought it back, and, and I kind of broke the, the boomerang. But then Eddie didn't give me 20 bucks, because he didn't stipulate that fence it went over. <laughs> so in the email update I kinda said and Eddie reneged on give me his twenty bucks. So I'm sorry. Eddie apparently didn't renege on give me his twenty. Why don't you guys stay on there? Reading guys. Word. This is Esther 4.14, and it says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand your workings and your hands and our lives, so that when we live, our lives would be reflective of what you are doing, that we would be those who constantly remember you. Who see the things you are doing and openly offer you praise for those things. And we would not be silent but live out loud by how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So we are starting a new book of the Bible today. Esther, you can tell from like all the... I was at the Venetian in Las Vegas and I and I saw this umbrella thing, if you've ever been there. I took a picture and I'm like, this is what we're doing for Esther. I sent it to Mikey and I'm like, yeah. So it's like you're in Vegas, but not... It's, so when we start the book of Esther, we're not actually even going to get to the book of Esther today, because that's how I do introductions, apparently. Uh, but hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy this. Uh, I actually planned on doing the book of Esther over a year and a half ago. I stuck it on our calendar, and then all of a sudden, everybody started to do these Esther Bible studies. And I'm like, oh, so we didn't steal it from somebody else. They all took my idea. That's... Uh, Esther is a great book. Esther has something for everybody. Uh, there's, there's like men and alcohol and women and suspense and sex and evil and more evil and evil guys. And, and the good guys look like evil guys because we're all evil and only Jesus is good. Uh, there's death and destruction and mayhem and intrigue and revenge and holidays. And ultimately, though, it is about the providence of God. And I'm going to apologize to you up front today because I am going to give you a lot of information. That's why we gave you notes. Because I'm going to give you a lot of information, a lot of history, so you understand Esther as we walk into the first chapter next week because there's a lot of background that goes on. Uh, In the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, they are essentially the same thing as in your Old Testaments, but they break them up into three sections. The third section bundles actually five books together, and these books are the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Uh, these these books are bundled together, and they're called the Megaloth, meaning the scrolls. Now, the book of Esther is actually in these scrolls called the Megala, which means the scroll, because it is so popular with people. Uh, Esther, from the time it was written, has been controversial. Some people love it because it shows the deliverance of the Jews from this oppressive regime. And other people hate it because it really shows an indefensible moral position by God's people. And also in the book of Exodus, there is actually no reference to God whatsoever. And so you can see there's a little bit of division with that. Historically speaking, the book of Esther takes place in a city called Susa during the reign of King Xerxes. Some of your Bibles might actually say Ahasuerus. It all depends on which language they're that out to and into. We're going to say Xerxes because it's Greek and it's NIV, so we'll just go with that. Uh, he reigned as king of Persia from 486 to 465 B.C. His empire ranges from India to Ethiopia. It's gigantic in this time and day. Uh, Esther is the only Old Testament book that takes place in Persia. Uh, And many people have actually questioned whether the story of Esther is historical or it's made up. Because uh, when you read Esther, it reads like a play, like satire and and wit and and humor, like it's a fictional story. So some people have said, well, it can't really be true because it's a fictional story. Some people, because of that, try to go through and discredit all the historical accuracies that are in the book. And I will tell you this, that despite all these attempts to try and make people think it's not historical, uh, if you look at the Persian courts, the customs of the times, the precise dates, the Persian names, all of those actually withstand attack from outside sources. There's impressive evidence that the book of Esther actually is historical. Uh, The character of King Xerxes uh, what is, he's consistent with what is known from him from all sources outside of the Bible, that he has huge drinking parties, that he throws extravagant gifts, and he has a very irrational temper. And so when you, when you read the book of Esther and it kind of reads like a story, it's because it is. A story. F.B. Huey, he writes this, he says, The fact that literary forms and techniques can be found, discovered in Esther, should not raise questions in the reader's mind as to the inspiration. God's revelation has always come in understandable forms that communicate rather than obfuscate. His ultimate and greatest revelation, that of his son, was communicated in human form. So, the Jews at this time, when the book of Esther is written, they're living in what's called the Diaspora. Diaspora means the dispersion. Jews that remained scattered throughout all these different lands that didn't actually go back and live in their homeland of Israel. The first dispersal took place in 722 B.C. Since then, there has always been these people that have been known as the Diaspora. Actually, in 1 Peter 1.1, Peter writes this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. James 1.1 1, 1 says, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. These are the diaspora. and a matter of fact, in Acts 11.26, it says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And these would be Jewish believers, part of the diaspora, who believed in Christ. Now, how do you get the diaspora? Well, it works like this. God keeps telling his people to stop following foreign gods, to do the things that he calls them to do. Uh, we looked at this in a whole series called Empire last year. And so what the Jews started to do when they got in their own country is they started to enslave people. They stopped caring for the widows and the orphans and, and the fatherless. And because they stopped, started walking away from God's ways and what He was calling them to, God then sent invaders to take them away and discipline them so they would remember Him and become the people He calls them to be. Uh, in 900 B.C., it, it starts there. In 900 B.C., you get to a thing called the Divided Kingdom. Israel kind of has a civil war, and it breaks into two halves. Uh, one half is called Israel, and it has ten tribes, with the center of that being Ephraim. And on the other side, you have two tribes, which is just Judah and Benjamin. And so you have this civil war. So in 722 BC, the Assyrians come to power, and they come in, and they conquered Israel. Not Judah, just Israel, those top ten tribes. And they haul them off, and that's where the diaspora actually begins. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon, and he comes and he conquers the Assyrians, and then he takes his army down into Israel to take the rest of Israel, Judah, and Benjamin. In 587 B.C., he completes his conquest, hauls everybody off. The word Jew actually comes from Judah, because when the remaining Jews were expelled from their land, the tribe of Judah was the last to go. Most present-day Jews today can trace their lineage back to Judah. Judah. Hence, they are known as Judeans or Jews. You're like, oh, I learned something. There you go. you learn more. We'll keep going here. Uh, the Medians then come in, and the Medians overtake the Babylonians, and the Babylonians, uh, and then the Medians were actually overthrown by the Persians in 539 B.C. Cyrus. He is the first king of Persia. Uh, Persia actually reigns until 330 B.C., a little over 300 years. He was in turn conquered by the Greeks, and a guy named Alexander! One person. Bam! There you go. Gold star. On the way out. Okay. Uh, the, The Jews actually look at Cyrus, and they love Cyrus because Cyrus allowed the Jews to start returning to their homeland to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Now, Esther takes place again in a city called Susa, and Susa is probably the winter capital of the empire. Uh, the two most lavish courts in, uh, in Persia at the time were a place called Persepolis and Susa. They symbolize the king's power and majesty. So King Xerxes, he comes to power. And the Greeks, they're fighting a few skirmish little battles around. And so in 480, what happens is Xerxes says, I'm tired of these Greeks. And he takes his army, and he goes into Greece. He's like, I'm going to just wipe him out. But he goes into Greece, and he gets his butt handed to him. I mean, he just gets beat up. So he goes back, tail between his legs, back to his own cities. And what he does at that point is he starts to build up his cities and his harem, as men are wont to do when they get beat up. They go home and go, honey, they beat me up. You know, so it's... Guys, do uh, the Greeks actually always like the story of Esther because it shows this bumbling king who can't really get anything right and everything in his kingdom's falling apart? So th- they love it. Uh, there are four major characters in the book of Esther. There is Esther, who the book is named after because if there wasn't somebody in the book of Esther named Esther, we'd be like, why is it called Esther? Right? You got Mordecai. Mordecai's is a Jew. He's a good guy. You got Haman, who's a Malachite. He's an evil guy, and then you have the king. Uh, Again, Esther is full of satire and contrast and irony and humor. And there are different reasons why people believe the book was actually written. Some people say, well, it's it's to explain the holiday of Purim for, for the Jews. Because there's only two holidays that the Jews celebrate that are not prescribed in the Torah. These two holidays, outside of all their other ones, are Purim and Hanukkah. And so we need to explain this. Why, why do Jews celebrate this? And so they do that. And I think that's part of the, one of the reasons why the book is written. There's also political motives, people say, because it's this nationalistic fervor, the deliverance of God's people. And yeah, it could probably do that. And then also, some people say it's to remind the Jews that even while they were still part of this diaspora, not living in their home country, that God still cared about them. And I think that's true as well. But I think mostly over all of it is to show God's providential care of His people. Providence is simply defined as God's foreseeing care of all the creatures of the earth and that God oversees these people who are part of the diaspora and he loves them. And it is so subtle in the book that it stands out because, again, in Esther, God's name is not mentioned once. Esther doesn't mention the law, the Torah, the covenant, the temple, any of the things that standard Jews would look for in their books. Anything that relates to their faith is not found in in here. And so why does Esther not mention God? One commentator... (laughs) who's a Jewish commentator. I think this is really funny. He talks about how Esther is to be read during a time of merrymaking and drinking. Actually, Esther 9.22, it says that. It's a time of merrymaking and rejoicing, drinking and rejoicing. And so what happens, the Talmud says this. The Talmud says, A man is obligated to drink on Purim until he is unable to distinguish between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So basically what it says is, during this holiday, you're supposed to get so lit that you cannot tell the difference between your friends and your enemies. And you're like, I love you. Now, the Jews took took God's name as being very sacred, so they never wanted to mispronounce God's name. And so if there's this much drinking and merrymaking going on, and then you're supposed to read the book of Esther, you'd be like, uh, and you you might mispronounce God's name. And they didn't want anybody to mispronounce it, so they believe that some people just took the name of God out of the entire book, so nobody would mispronounce God's name. Now other people take the exact opposite tact and they say, well, we believe that uh, God's name isn't in it because God's not in the book at all. Uh, You have this vengeful nationalistic spirit that's shown in the book. None of the characters exhibit very many noble qualities whatsoever. This is King Xerxes. He is cruel and sensual and capricious. Esther is willing to hide uh, her identity to become queen and she has no reluctance to marry a Gentile. Mordecai, who is her uncle, advises her to lie and conceal her identity to become queen. Uh, Esther shows no mercy when Haman, the bad guy, is going to get killed. She actually calls for the, the, the death of his sons, has his sons hanged as well. And not content with just the deliverance of her people, Esther and Mordecai get the king's permission to write a decree that allow the Jews to then go and slaughter and plunder their enemies. And it all starts when a guy named Mordecai would not humble himself and simply bow down to a guy named Haman. I would say the entire book should perhaps be seen as a subtle reminder that God's people sometimes fail to console Him prior to acting. Sometimes God's people fail to do things uh, in God's will, and we act contrary to that. But the message is that even though we are prone to do all of these crazy things, God is still a God that cares for His people and will work out all things to His purposes. Esther implicitly shows the providential care of God, no matter how stupid we may get at times. And all the happenings in the book are much better explained by God affecting the deliverance of his people. And the book implies that even when God's people are far from Him and disobedient, they are still the object of His concern and love. Now I, that might be great news for you today. You may feel like I have done so many things that God can't redeem. My life is just God can redeem those things. It, that is the story of Esther, that God can redeem every thing. The sovereignty of God is explicit in the story. Events that seem to be under the control of men ultimately come under the control of God for the benefit of His people. And by not mentioning God, the entire book actually points to God. Now, this is where we're going to camp on for a little bit so you understand this. Why by not mentioning God does it point to God? Because Jews would never fail to think about God. Again, it was implicit in all things that the Jews did, especially Jewish people who were part of this diaspora, part of this dispersion, because they realized the reason they were part of this dispersion was that they had forgotten God. They failed to think about God. They failed to remember Him. Fifty times before this takes place, God says, remember, remember, don't forget me. Open to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's a heritage that Jews began to follow that understood this idea of blessing and prayer that transformed them with the instilling presence of God that would remind them of God's presence. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. This is God speaking. He says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. The word here for forget, it means to cease to care about So when you have everything and you're sitting all fat and pretty and happy, don't cease to care about what God wants to do in and through you. Uh, Verse 12, Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And these are all the things before Israel actually gets into their land. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. They get into the land, they forgot. So God disciplines them by sending them off to foreign lands. So during the dispersal, in order to heed these warnings, the Jews began to develop this tradition of offering short prayers throughout the day. From the time you woke up to the time you went to sleep at night. This practice is still followed among Orthodox Jews today. And these tiny prayers are called bracha. And it means blessing. Blessing the Lord. Psalm 103, verse 1, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. To bless God simply means to praise Him. The word can actually mean to kneel down. And so what they believed is that every time you pray, you're momentarily kneeling down mentally and humbly praising God for the goodness that He has placed in your life. In Jesus' days, these prayers would be a short line that start with, blessed be he, because they didn't want to mispronounce God's name. So they start with, blessed be he. And then a couple hundred years later, they, they started to add, king of the universe. For 1700 years, most Jews start their prayers with, blessed are you, O Lord our God, king of the universe. These, This is the line, Baruch Atah Adonai Elohimu Melech Aholam. Anybody ever heard that? No? See if you can say it. I think I put it up there. Say it, Baruch Atah Adonai See, look, you're all Jews. It's great. Good, good for you. Uh, so in Jesus' time, the way this worked out in, in practical living is you'd probably wake up to a rooster crow in the morning. And so what you would do when that rooster crowed, you would probably pray something like, I am grateful before you live in an eternal king for, my, for returning my soul to me with compassion. You are faithful beyond measure. And then you would think about that rooster that's current outside, and you would say, Blessed is he who has given the rooster understanding to distinguish between day and night. And we would pray, God, kill the crazy chicken. You know? and in our vernacular, we may pray, God, I thank you that, that I am alive again today. Thank you that clock radios are plentiful and cheap because I'm going to break this one right now. So after you open your eyes, you would typically in Jesus' day pray this prayer that said, Blessed is he who opens the eyes of the blind. And then you'd say another dozen or so short prayers as you kind of felt out, making sure all your body parts are still working. For some of us, that's more than others. It's like, oh, that doesn't, I'm not praying about that. You know, and just, you find things that work and you, and you pray about those things. Then there's even a blessing that you'd get up and go to the bathroom, you'd say a blessing. When you, I couldn't find what the blessing was, but I, I was looking for it. So, I don't know. Thank you, God, that pooping feels so good. I don't know, but, but there, there's something. And then you'd walk outside and then you would start saying these prayers of blessing and thanksgiving for flowers and fruit trees and spring and summer and the ocean. And if you happen to walk by an exceptionally beautiful person like my wife, you would like, you would say, God, thank you for the exceptionally beautiful person. I think I, every day that's me because I get to roll over and look at her. She's got to look at this, you know. So, so I, I thank God every day. Uh, you, you praise God and thank Him for exceptional teachers. If, if you went to, to temple or something like that, long last friends. If you peeled fruit or like an orange and the scent of that orange kind of wafted up and it hit, you, would, you would praise God. You say, Baruch for that, a, a prayer of thanksgiving for that. But also in times of grief, maybe somebody died and then you heard the news jewish people would still thank god even for that and they would say blessed is he who is the true judge to remind them that no matter what happens or you know how grievous maybe the ills are in their life that god is still good and he will ultimately bring about true justice and right the wrongs of the world god is always providentially in control of everything we are called to be a people who love jesus with all of our hearts and so there are times when we, when we love God and it's, things are going good, so we, oh, this is so great. But we're also supposed to love and offer prayers to God when we're angry, when we're sad, uh, when we're mourning inside. This has great implications for the church in the United States of America because you get told all the time, oh, you know, when, when God blesses you, it's all good things. No, sometimes God blesses you by sending you very hard things into your life. And it is at those times when you need to thank God for those things as well. I mean, some of us, we feel like, why is God punishing me? The light turned red. You know, that's me, by the way. You know, and you're supposed to think, "Thank you, Jesus, for teaching me patience." Now, can I go? You know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus is feeding five this, these five thousand people, and so he gets gets some loaves, a couple of fishes, and what he does before this is he says a prayer. Uh, Matthew 14:19 says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. If you have an English Standard Version, it actually translates this literally, and it actually says he said a blessing. He said a blessing. Now, Matthew doesn't record what the exact words of the blessing are because Matthew was written to Jews, and most Jews wouldn't know what the blessing was. Jesus probably prayed like a Jewish father, and he would say, Blessed is he who brings forth bread from the earth. Open to Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. Matthew 9, verse 8, Jesus heals a paralyzed guy at this point. They, some friends bring him to Jesus. Jesus heals him in front of this entire crowd. The crowd sees this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 8 says, When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. What they probably shouted was the traditional Jewish thing would be, Blessed is he who has performed a miracle in this place. Because that's the blessing that you would pray when you encountered a place where God performed a miracle. Turn to Luke, chapter 17 luke chapter 17 verses 12 through 19 jesus has just healed 10 people of leprosy one of them a samaritan comes back and it says and he blessed the lord in a loud voice Uh, luke 17 verse 15 says one of them when he saw he was healed came back praising god in a loud voice he threw himself at jesus feet and thanked him it's blessed him and he was a samaritan And he probably prayed this, Blessed is he who does good to the undeserving and has rendered every kindness to me. Because that's the blessing that a Jew would have prayed when God delivered them from a terrible illness or terrible crisis. Jesus then looks at this guy and he says, Where are the other nine? Why didn't they return to pray the traditional blessing, thanking God for what he has done? Thanking God publicly for all that he does in our lives. Now, Christianity is supposed to be what Judaism was supposed to become. Uh, and, and there's a rabbinic idea all throughout the New Testament that you're to bless the Lord 100 times a day. Paul kind of writes about this: to be thankful in all things and all times. In Ephesians 5:20, it says, "Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything." Literally, it's always be giving thanks to God the Father for everything." Colossians three seventeen. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. First Thessalonians five seventeen and eighteen says, "Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances." And rather than urging people just to praise God with vague words, Paul is probably thinking of this habit of continual prayer from his culture. Now, for you and I, how often do we thank God for everything? How often we even feel like things are lost and out of our control? We don't know what's going on. Do we still think and praise God in those circumstances? You know that the book of Psalms, more than half of the book of Psalms are, are Psalms of complaint and lament. David or other authors being angry and complaining to God, because I will tell you the only thing God doesn't want from you is your silence. God wants us speaking to him all the time. Because even when we have these terrible circumstances in our lives, if we are praying and thanking God for everything, our minds are continually drawn to him. It's one of the reasons Christ says, you know, when when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So we are constantly looking to Christ. We are constantly lifting him up. Philip Yancey, he writes and and tells the story of a rabbi who is trying to help a man who is undergoing a crisis of faith. And so after talking a couple hours with this guy, the rabbi just goes, why are you so angry with God? And the guy didn't even realize he was mad at God. He was always taking his anger out on all these people that were associated with God and not God. And he goes, I didn't even understand. He goes, I am angry at God. So the rabbi takes this guy to a place of prayer away from everybody else. And he goes, okay, right here, I want you to just express everything you're feeling. Just talk to God. Just let it out. So the guy does. And he starts screaming and yelling. And then he starts crying. And it says, and then he began to cry and could not stop crying. And little by little, his cries became sobs that turned into prayers. Because prayer changes our attitude. God doesn't want our silence. He wants us always talking to Him so our lives become refocused where they're supposed to be. You might think that offering so many little prayers like this, if you got in this habit of it, may just kind of seem really disingenuous. Like, oh, my heart's not really in it. Well, you know, when you're growing up, your mom told you to do two things. Say please and thank you. And why do you do it? Because it shows respect and it actually makes you a little more thankful. This is the same thing. Always get in the habit of praising God, because when you do it teaches us how mindful God actually is of us, how He continually cares for us, and that life is not about us, that our life is about him lauren winter uh, she grew up as as a Jew, and she when he, she her bar mitzvah, her aunt comes and gives her this little prayer book she says now lauren this is, this is how we pray Jews pray like this, and so she had this prayer book now Lauren winter later she becomes a Christian in her life, and she says, "I still recognize the this power of my prayer book she said this she goes i have sometimes set aside my prayer book for days and weeks on end and i find at the end of those days and weeks on end that i have lapsed into narcissism why because prayer shows where we are to be truly grateful prayer shows who has providential care of our lives prayer shows that we are trying to focus our lives not on ourselves or on the circumstances around us but on the god who stands over and above all of our circumstances all of us in our minds start to go back in the right direction because we are praising God and lifting Him up. Now, Jewish prayers were always steeped in thankfulness. And nowhere is that habit of thankfulness more enshrined than all the great feasts that Israel celebrated, including the festival of Purim, which Esther is all about. The Jews of the diaspora in Esther are probably praying every moment of the day because they realize why they're in the situation that they were. And again, at the end of Esther, this new feast is inaugurated. And it's a festival that remembers what God did because He cares for His people. And it shows that that, far, that God is not far, that our great God is very near. And our great God cares for us more than we could ever know. He comes to re- rescue and redeem His people. All of these Jewish feasts were offered as a continual reminder that God has provide, provided for His people and He's redeemed and He has cared for His people. Uh, in in these feasts, the Jews were to experience the highest joy that God would give to them. And it was through these ancient feasts that God always hinted about the ultimate blessing that would come in the person of Christ, because everything, all the scriptures, are all about Jesus. In Esther, just like your life today, you could probably point out people like that's an evil guy and that's an evil guy, and I don't like that guy, and you know, but I'm okay. And, you know, we're all evil guys. Jesus is the only good guy and if you think that in your life you have been living a story where jesus is absent you need to think again because he is not absent he is calling you he invites you into life with him because he holds all things together prayer is meant to refocus us all the day constantly reminding us of his goodness and grace because we are evil jesus is good and you might think well i got a crazy spouse or i got a crazy kids or my boss is crazy or, my friends are crazy well you know what look in the mirror You're crazy, okay? You're crazy too. And so what we're to do is to realize, you know what? We're all just messed up. And so our focus should not be on other people or on ourselves. Our focus should be constantly drawn back to our great God who cares about us as a people so much. So try this. Try to begin to start saying these prayers of blessing and watch for the providence of God because all creation is immersed in the providential presence of God. It is. And so this morning, if you guys are in a place and maybe you don't know how to start praying like this, there's going to be deacons and elders in the back. And if you need someone to start and pray with you, they will pray with you. Uh, I invite you guys to communion. In communion, you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice which reminds us of Christ's blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be people who have a relationship with this God. So that we can be a people who understand the greatness of God's providential care for His people. The band's going to come up, and they're going to do a couple songs. And these songs that we do are going to be songs that remind you uh, who God is and refocus you a little bit on who God is and reminds us of God's presence in our lives. You know what? Have him come out, and you go back there and get him for me. i got to get him up here. Last time he tripped getting up on stage, so you know I didn't know if he was going to do it again. He's got big arms, so he, like, stopped himself on the way oh, yeah. Uh, And again, these songs are all about God's providence and His goodness to us. Uh, We're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back. And we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. So we give you that opportunity every week. And then we're going to worship God through fellowship. There's food and stuff back there. But don't forget, fellowship is not just eating sugar in the back. Fellowship is how you live your life. Every day outside of these walls, interacting with God's people and those around you. I will tell you. If you are somebody who starts to get into the practice of praising God for everything, everything that comes up in your life, a little, little quick little flare prayer, thanks God, ooh this, ooh that, your mind will constantly start to focus more on Him. And if you spend your life depressed all the time, you'll probably become less depressed. If you spend your life feeling like you're alone, you'll probably start to feel less alone. If you spend your life angry, you'll probably start to feel less angry because you realize your life is not so much focused on you. Your life is focused on this great God who loves you deeply. And that is where our focus should always be. Esther's a great book. It's a great book. And hopefully by the end of it, you'll be like, Oh, I understand that first week now. It'll be be great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a great God that has given us such a great and deep heritage. God, we ask that you would take and, and change our hearts so we understand the thankfulness of you. Not every day this week, have your Spirit continually remind us of how everything is in your hands. And when things feel like they're getting completely out of control, reset our minds to start focusing on you, the giver of life, and that nothing has not come to us that has not been sifted through your hands first. Because you are a God of providential care, and you know what we can handle and what we can't. Thank you for giving us uh, brothers and sisters in this room, believers in you that can step up beside us and walk this life, and have us be those who remind others around us who believe, to also be offering these short prayers this week. God changes to be a people who are truly thankful, those who truly trust in you, even when it seems like everything is in the hands of men, they're truly in the hands of you. And have that change how we live every single one of our days. Amen.